Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. In Minnesota, there are enough stories of supernatural happenings and paranormal experiences to make you think twice about venturing too far into the remote areas. For example, northern Minnesota is home to many Bigfoot sightings, and all around the state, rumors of haunted roads, hotels, and cemeteries abound. Minnesota in the 1970s was something of a hotbed of UFO activity, for the people who believe in that sort of thing, that is. And here's a newsflash, if you haven't heard, I may be in that group. This was a big decade for UFOs in Minnesota. A sheriff's deputy has a run-in with a ball of light on a rural stretch of highway on a hot and muggy August night in 1979. Sounds like a scene from a TV show, right? Well, it is. And that program is called Fargo. The reality of what happened on that northwestern Minnesota road in the early morning hours may indeed be much stranger than that which screenwriters produce. Studying the brilliant light in the stand of trees two and a half miles south of them, Marshall County Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson wondered if drug smugglers had flown over the Canadian border into the flat, isolated terrain of far northwestern Minnesota. The light was close to the ground, suggesting that the plane had either landed or crashed. Or maybe there was some simpler explanation. Johnson headed down the county highway to investigate. It was 1.40 a.m. on August the 27th, 1979. What would happen in the next few minutes would change Val Johnson's life for the rest of his days. Join me tonight as we're going to visit another excellent case with a witness of high credibility, and this time there may have been more left behind than you would think. Let's just say that this case puts the close in close encounters. Well, folks, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, good day, good whatever it is, wherever you are. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a good week. I hope it's warming up for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. Down here, it's been rainy. We've been getting quite a bit of rain, but again, it's starting to get that time of the year when we start to have the skies open up and we start getting two or three days of rain at a time. So it's good. I mean, like I say, that's part of the reason why this country is so green. Got a lot of news to get through tonight as well, folks, because last week's program, having had Nate on, which was an excellent episode, and again, thanks, Nate, for coming on. If you haven't heard it, folks, go back and check that one out. It was about the myths and legends in Pennsylvania, everything from ghosts and cryptids to all kinds of interesting things all over the state. And we ended with probably the biggest and most well-known kind of urban legend in Pennsylvania, which is the Green Man in Pittsburgh and actually based on a really tragic series of events. So go back and check that out if you haven't heard it. But anyway, by having Nate on, like I said at the time, folks, when I'm doing over two and a half hours of an interview, I didn't want to add news of the damned on top, or you're talking about a three-hour program, and that'll take you the whole week to get through for a lot of you who are on your commute and that. So we've got quite a bit of news of the damned to get through tonight. I just had a few things that I wanted to say. First and foremost, thank you. Thank you, everyone listening all over the world. 
Again, folks, I continue to be amazed by how many people all over listen, all over the U.S., in places and towns that I'll see, and I'll say, oh, I know that town, I know that area. Olympia, Washington was one of the latest uh, towns that I've seen, and I had family in Washington State. Uh, when I was a boy, Olympia Oli Beer was always well-known in our area, so uh, that was kind of cool. I had a listen from the UAE in the Middle East, so uh, that's the United Arab Emirates, for those of you who aren't sure of the... Uh, abbreviation. Yeah, it's been great, folks, and I really do appreciate everything you do for me. As I say, for those of you that want to support the show, you can just go in any of the episodes, go in the show notes, and there's a link at the very beginning of the episode of the show notes that says you can follow and support the show here. That'll take you to a link tree, and you can find anything you want there. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm not really on Twitter a lot, but you can find us on there. And also, you can go to the website, as I say, I haven't been posting much over there, folks. Truth is, I've had a bit on, but I've also just, yeah, I've just needed a bit of me time. So um, I've kind of dragged the chain doing some of these things that I'd normally try and keep up on. When you deal with a labor of love like the podcast, folks, uh, I know that I've got other friends out there listening who are podcasters. And you know, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that you don't necessarily see. And I'm not crying poor me or woe is me, but it eats up a lot of time. So I've been doing my best to try and balance a bit of my own life and trying to give myself a little bit of a break because there are days where I get burnt out. It's not doing the program. It's not doing this. It's not talking to you. It's more all of the additional things like social media, like going through and tidying up old podcasts and all those sorts of things. Maybe one day when I've got the money, maybe I'll get back to work or maybe I'll find a generous oligarch donor. Who knows? Maybe I'll discover our own version of Fen's Treasure down here in New Zealand. And then maybe I can outsource some of these things that, yeah, they're just chores, basically. I mean, there's no, I feel a, a, a sense of accomplishment when it's done. And I do it because I want the show to be the best that it can be. And I want it to be easy for people to discover. Like one of the things I've been doing as of late is going through the whole back catalog of episodes and updating the hashtags so people can go and find things for example, if you wanted to look for the episode that I did of the Lost lost uh, City in the Grand Canyon, you could just type in Grand Canyon, and it would come up. So things like that. It just takes a bit of time, folks. But again, that's just uh, that's part of my daily grind. It's, it's just one of those things where, um, yeah, it's got to be done sooner or later. I've got a few other things I really need to get through. We've, we've really got an awesome uh, milestone coming up here. Sorry, I just had to think of the right word to use. So the next episode, the next full episode of The Paranormal Sun will be the 50th full episode. So we're halfway through season three already, folks. And I've done so many bonuses in that. I've already done over 70 episodes and then another 20 plus on The Fortunate Sun, around 20. So I've done about 90 episodes in total, but this this next week will be the 50th full episode normal season episode. So for that episode, I'd really like to get that uh, interview release that I told you about. I'm working through it, but folks, it's just very time consuming and I've still got a bit to do. So here's the deal. If I don't get it done in time, then we're going to have another bit of a bonus episode and you're going to get another CIA episode. And I'll talk about UFOs and a few other things and news of the damned. But I really want that interview 
to be the 50th episode because it's a really cool interview and it was a fanboy moment for me and I think that you would enjoy it. Now, aside from that, I've also got a few more interviews in the works. Folks, I've got five or six interviews already backstacked. I've got a couple other people who have approached me. I didn't go and approach them, but they approached me to be on the show. And so I'll record those, and I've just told them they're not going to be on right away. So yeah, folks, um, getting a bit of a backlog. And uh, look, that's fine, because a lot of this stuff is evergreen content. doesn't really matter when it comes out. I do feel bad that I can't necessarily get it out there to you straight away, but I do want to do it in chronological order, and i got to get over this massive hump that was that very first interview where we had the technical issues. And once that's done, it'll be a little bit easier and a bit more free-flowing. See, like the episode that I just did with Nate, that's pretty easy to go through and edit. Just adjust the levels and that and edit out a few odd pauses and things like that. And oftentimes as I'm recording, I'll take notes. So I know to go back to maybe one hour and 20 minutes and there'll be a decent sized pause in there and the like. So sorry to just bang on about that folks, but I just want to give you a bit of an update of what's going on. Now I do have a few other mentions that I want to give out here. Now earlier in this week, folks, I, um, I was feeling a bit sorry for myself because I woke up and I had a wound on my hand and I've still got it. And it was a spider bite of some sort. Now, we're really fortunate here. We don't have super venomous spiders. We don't have the the uh, black widows and the brown recluses that you do in North America. We don't have all those horrid uh, Aussie spiders that you buggers have got across the ditch. But we do have a few that are semi-venomous. Um, and I've been bit by one before. I didn't know at the time, but later on when it got quite sore and swollen, I reckon I got bit by a white tail. And I would say this is probably a white tail bite as well. And so my, my, uh, my hand swollen up quite severely, uh, not crazy, but I mean, it's, it's pretty swollen. It looks like if you had on a pair of work gloves, but I'm keeping an eye on it. Well, anyway, the, the reason that I say that is here I was, you know, feeling sorry for myself for having this bite. And uh, it's nothing massive. It's not like um, I'm in the hospital or having to get any venom or anything else. And here I found out um, yesterday, as I was sitting there trying to catch up on some of my other friends' podcasts, that a close friend of the show, Bob in Oklahoma, here I am moaning about my life, and Bob has had to have fairly invasive surgery and had to have um, chest surgery um, with local anesthetic uh, to get a pacemaker put in. So, Bob... Look, man, you did really well considering that you had only just been out of your surgery to go and record an episode. I hope you recover quickly. I hope you're back on deck soon, and I'm glad to hear you're back at work. And for you, Bob, I have got a special article on the news of the damn tonight based in Oklahoma. I couldn't find anything recently like, you know, the last few weeks of anything going on in Oklahoma, but I've found this excellent article that's got a bit of medley of... Oklahoma stuff, Oklahoma lore that I thought you might find interesting. And there'll be many, Bob, that you'll nod your head along to and you'll say, oh, yeah, I know those. But hopefully there'll be some that maybe aren't so well known. And I know I've got other listeners in Oklahoma, so hopefully you do find some interest in that. Folks, eventually, um, I would really love to do this show all the time, full time. And eventually I'd love to get to every state in the U.S. It's just going to take years, obviously, as you can tell, because that's not the only focus of the show. But again, if you're in a state and you want to know more about what's going on in your state, or if there's something that you know about, 
and you think I don't know about or haven't covered on the show, send us an email to theparanormalsun at gmail.com, and I'll try and reconfigure things and get one of those episodes on the air sooner rather than later. Now, I do have a few other shout-outs. First and foremost, Brad, Brad in Michigan, been a big supporter of the show. Brad's in the Facebook group. And Brad's been very positive. Brad, as with Bob, is another... We we all met in a Facebook group for a program that we enjoy. And I mentioned it on the show many times, which is Expanded Perspectives. And Brad has been very supportive of the program. So, Brad, happy birthday, man. Happy 25th birthday. And hopefully uh, you don't get up to too much mischief. But I know the wife will keep you in line. Anyway, Brad, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for supporting me. Happy birthday, and I hope you have a great one in Michigan. I had some really other great conversations this week as well. I, I had some chats with uh, with John from Boo My Dad Says in Tennessee. We had a few good chats, so uh, John, thanks as always for your support. I had some chats. I don't want to spill the beans yet, folks, because they're upcoming interviews, but I had chats with a few of the people that I've got interviews that I'll be recording with that were quite good, and it, it, it was good for me because... I don't mind being home, folks. I'm a bit of a homebody and a hermit anyway, but honestly, yeah, without having that work dialogue and catching up with people at work and that, I miss out a lot on the day-to-day conversations with people, and I do become a bit reclusive and a bit introverted, so it's good to catch up with folks, and if you ever want to talk to me, if you just want to ask me a question or you just want to see how I'm doing, drop me a drop me a message on the Instagram page, just go and find the Paranormal Sun, so the underscore paranormal underscore sun and also on facebook you know you can get a hold of me on there send me a message and i'll get back to you as soon as i can and i've had chats with a few other friends as well friends of the show uh definitely um skinwalker ranch in new york the chapter president had some great great chats there so thanks for that thanks to timmy from uh ace of cups tarot readings Timmy's been on the program a few times, and Timmy's the chapter president in New Jersey. So, yeah, Timmy, it was great catching up, and thanks for checking in on me. And the Xander and Stone podcast. So Xander and Stone, they cover a lot of the things that I do here, as well as some other subjects. And they had a couple episodes of kind of like listener questions and answers. And the question that I asked to Xander and Stone were, of all of the paranormal phenomena out there, so UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, you name it, what would you want to find out about and why? And the caveat was you couldn't say like just UFOs or ghosts. You had to, you, you could name a certain specific thing. So for example, if you said you wanted to know about UFOs, you could say, oh, I want to know what happened at Roswell, or I want to know what happened with the Phoenix Lights. Or with a ghost, you could ask about a certain haunting. Well, Xander said that he really wants to know about Area 51, and I think that's an excellent one because, obviously, if you found out what's going on at Area 51, I think you would find out a lot of the UFO mystery, so to speak, or a lot of what's going on. And the other one that Stone mentioned was that she would like to know about the Philadelphia Experiment. And that was pretty cool because oftentimes, folks, honestly, I forget about how much I've learned and how much I know about these topics that I cover over the years and how much my brain has just soaked them up like a sponge. And uh, yeah, you know, the Philadelphia experiment's a very interesting one. It's definitely one of those that 
I definitely say there are some dubious claims there, okay? I'm not saying the whole thing is BS, but on the believability scale, it is hard for a lot of people to believe that one. But again, if we could prove that Tesla had technology like this and also that things like time travel and teleportation were real and had been done by the U.S. government before most of us were born, yeah, that would definitely be an interesting one. So good call there. And again, everyone else who's taken the time to check in on me, make sure I'm all right in that. Uh, two a day in India, the uh, chapter president in India, Mark in Japan, you know, all of you. I know you're all busy. I know you're all living your life. So thank you. Uh, I really do appreciate it. I've said it many times on here, and I mean it, folks. The older I get, the more I realize that the most precious thing we have in our life to give to others is our time. Because we have a finite amount, and we never know when the stop glass is going to stop running when the hourglass is going to be empty. So thank you, each and every one of you. Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I never thought that I would get to do something like this and that I would have so much interest, enthusiasm, and buy-in. So again, thank you. So to everyone else, anyone I forgot to mention, apologies. And uh, I do have a couple of just other little things to tell you as well, folks. Now, I had a very interesting dream this last week. It was very odd. Now, the dream was this. I went outside, and I was looking up at the night sky, and at first, you know, I just saw stars. I didn't really see anything else. And then all of a sudden, I saw lights moving around. So the classic thing of, like, if you've seen the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and they're at Devil's Tower at the end, and you can see these lights moving against the constellations. It was like that. Didn't get any closer or anything else. Now, you're probably going to say to yourself, oh, well, JT, that's no big deal. I mean, sure that you've done that a lot of times. Honest to goodness, folks, 43 years old, I can never remember having a dream like that about UFOs, ever. Like, UFOs in general. I just, I, I, I do have dreams, not... A lot in my life that I can remember, but since Timmy and I started talking about this around December, January, I have had more and more that I can remember, but I've never had a UFO dream I can remember. Well, yet again, folks, in the ongoing series of synchronicities that has been the paranormal sun, a few days later, folks, I'm sitting in my recliner that doesn't recline because it's broken. And I'm flicking through the channels, and lo and behold, what's on TV? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it had just pretty much started, so I sat there and I watched the whole movie. Because I haven't seen it since, maybe when I was a teen, but probably more when I was uh, in grade school or uh, elementary school in the U.S. And boy, number one, first thing, that movie has held up well. For being 40 plus years old, man, that movie is still an excellent film. And it was really cool, again, to see J. Allen Hynek in the movie, to see their approximation of Jacques Vallée. And also, now maybe I'm crazy, and I did a little bit of cursory looking online, but I couldn't really get an answer to this. After they had gone to India, so when the Jacques Vallée type guy had gone to India, and he comes back and he's playing these recordings for all these experts and ufologists. 
I could swear that one of the guys sitting there looked like McDonald, uh, James McDonald that I've talked about in the past. Looked very familiar to me, at least looking from the photos of doing those episodes where I needed the photos for uh, the audiograms. Very interesting, I thought. So I'll see if I can get to the bottom of that. But anyway, folks, again, just another crazy synchronicity that that movie, of all movies, just happened to be on that night. Because I can't remember seeing it on TV here. You know, we've got movie channels just like in the U.S., but I can't remember. It's not like they've been showing Close Encounters on a loop or something. You'd be much more uh, much more plausible to see something like the new Men in Black movie, that international one or whatever. But to see Close Encounters, it was pretty trippy to me. So, yeah, interesting. Um, let's see. What else have I been up to? Uh, I've been enjoying a program that Dave from the old 77 and Dave is uh, the chapter president in Missouri. Dave uh, pointed out to me this program because I heard him talking about it on the old 77 called Surviving Death. And that program is about everything from mediums and do we live after death and uh, near death experiences and all of that. And I caught the first two or three episodes and I found it pretty interesting. So, Dave, thanks for turning me on to that. And for those of you that are interested in these kind of things, check that out on Netflix. It's called Surviving Death, and I personally think it's well worth watching. Aside from that, I haven't watched a whole lot of kind of paranormal type things. I did watch uh, a few episodes of Paranormal Caught on Tape. I got like 20 some of them queued up, recorded that I haven't watched. And there were a few little interesting things on there, but nothing that was like, whoa, moment. But yeah, pretty interesting ones. So, folks, with that, I don't want to hold you up all night. I could sit here and talk to you all night. Feels like I haven't got to talk to you for a while because because it's been interviews and the two-part Westall episode. And, uh, yeah, I just haven't had a chance to really kind of tell you how I'm doing, how I'm feeling. But aside from that, folks, I'm doing well. For those of you who have asked me about William and wondering how he is, He's still not walking, unfortunately, my friends. Um, he's got all the love and attention and care that he could want. I dote over him, and I try and spend as much time as, I'm with, as I can with him. And generally, when I'm not out here in the studio, either researching or recording, I'm spending time with William. So a lot of that time that I'm not spending on things like social media and that, I'm spending with him. Yeah, aside from that, like I say, I was trying to think of what else I've been... Oh, I finally finished off uh, BoJack Horseman, which isn't really a paranormal show, but I found... I, I quite enjoyed that uh, that run, uh, and I hadn't watched the last three or four episodes, so I sat down and binged them the other night. And yeah, I thought it was pretty fitting ending to that uh, program. Pretty good. So folks, now we're going to move on to the news of the damned. And for those of you who may be new to the program... There was a gentleman in the early 1900s in the U.S. named Charles Ford, and he was interested in a lot of the same things that I cover on the program, the paranormal, the unexplained. The term Fordian and Fordiana came from this man, Charles Ford. Well, anyway, Charles Ford was one of the first people who started gathering this information from magazines and newspapers all over the world, and he recorded them on note cards and then saved them up until he had several thousand, and he then released books on these subjects and his thoughts and encouraged other people to have dialogue about it. So every time we have this news segment, it's always known as the News of the Damned, as an homage to Mr. Fort. 
Okay, folks, so this first one is for Bob in Oklahoma, but also any of the listeners in Oklahoma. I know I've got a few, so I thought that you might find this interesting. As I say, I couldn't find any kind of current cryptid or UFO type story, something mysterious or unexplained, but I did find this one, and this was quite interesting, I thought. So this comes from Tulsa World. And this was published on October the 21st of 2020, so obviously just in time for Halloween. But they've also had an update since then in November. And this one is titled Highway to Halloween, From Spooklight to Shaman's Portal, Road Trip to Erie, Oklahoma Destinations. And this is from John Ferguson. So it says here, Rob Adams once carpooled with pals in search of the spooklight. They found it, or did it find them? It was a little confusing for a while because of the proximity to Highway 44 with the lights from the traffic, Adams said. But when we drove down the road and it started dancing on our hood, then appeared behind us, it was pretty freaky. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's that time of year if you want to pursue freaky and spooky. Interested in a Halloween season road trip? There are Travelock.com pages devoted to the state's spooky ur- urban legends and the top haunted places in Oklahoma. Let's delve into a few of them. The Spooklight Sightings of the Spooklight occur in the northeastern corner of the state. Travelock.com said reports of the Spooklight have plagued the area for years, without any concrete explanations, despite numerous investigations. Some credit the flickering orbs to gas and mineral deposits and refracted headlight beams, but all have been discredited upon further examination. Gene Curtis of the Tulsa World wrote about the spooklight phenomenon in 2007, saying that basketball-sized floating lights bounce up into the treetops in an area where Oklahoma, Kansas, and Missouri converge. He wrote that sightseers travel East 40 in Hornet, Missouri, and E50 in Miami, Oklahoma, near Quapaw, to try to catch a glimpse. And Bob, you can have a laugh at me mispronouncing your um, city and town names. Once upon a time, a nearby Spooksville museum displayed photographs and a collection of stories about the Spooklight. Closed decades ago, the museum was equipped with a viewing platform. There are steeped-in lore legends about what the Spooklight could be. An Army Corps of Engineers unit studied the Spooklight in 1946 and concluded that the phenomena was a mysterious light of unknown origin. Popular Mechanics dispatched a journalist team in 1965. A subsequent article said the light was produced by vehicles traveling east on Route 66, about 10 miles away. The magazine said the shimmering effect and the golden hue were caused by layers of air with varying temperature. However, area residents pointed out the sightings occurred long before there were automobiles or highways in the area. Adams was a college student at Missouri State circa 1989 when he went to investigate. He made the trek so he could write a term paper. He feels fortunate that he witnessed the spook lights in all its glory. His conclusion? He thinks it's a phenomenon caused by natural gases escaping the earth. So the next one here is called the Mummy's Grave. Elmer McCurdy was fatally wounded in a 1911 shootout near the Kansas-Oklahoma border. McCurdy was taken to a funeral home in Pahuska. No one claimed his body. An undertaker embalmed his remains and monetized the situation by charging visitors to see the mummy. According to McCurdy lore, a circus representative presented to be a McCurdy relative and purchased the body. 
The Mummy was an attraction at freak shows and carnivals for decades. It was an amusement park in California. Sorry, it was at an amusement park in California. An arm was broken off when an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man was filmed there. Hey, this is a real body. Okay, so that's when they found out it was something real, not just a prop. McCurdy's remains were identified, and he was buried at Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie 66 years after his death. There's a tombstone bearing his name at the graveyard. Magnetic Hill. Now, I've heard about this in a few states, and I've heard of the one in Oklahoma. Wouldn't it be creepy if your vehicle began rolling uphill? Brace yourself for the experience if you visit Magnetic Hill in Springer. Said Travelock.com, If you park your car at the bottom of the hill on Pioneer Road and put it in neutral, you'll feel your car being pulled uphill as you let off the brake. Many explanations are given for this funny mystery. Locals think that the ghosts of car crashes past are the ones moving your car away from where they died. There are also tales of a magnetic force in the area strong enough to crash a plane. That's interesting. I didn't know about that, about the uh, forces strong enough to crash a plane. RoadsideAmerica.com says you can get to Magnetic Hill by taking exit 42 off of Interstate 35. Drive west one and a half miles on Oklahoma 53, then turn right onto Pioneer Pit Road and drive another mile. The site said you'll reach the bottom of the hill when you see gravel washed onto the blacktop. Stop, put your vehicle in neutral, and you may get a surprise. Use flashers and be alert for other vehicles. I don't want to spoil the story for you folks, but there is a reason why a lot of these magnetic hills um, occur naturally, let's say. And I'll leave it at that. Maybe we'll go into it in future one day. Bigfoot Turf. Hanobia. It's 15 miles southeast of Talinia, Ta- Talahina. Hosts an annual Bigfoot Festival. The 2020 event was canceled due to COVID-19 but it will return in 2021, according to HoniaBigfoot.com. You can still road trip to the area and get all the social distancing you want while looking for Bigfoot-type creatures in this heavily forested area of southeastern Oklahoma. Are you brave enough to go hunting at night? What's that sound? Shaman's Portal Oklahoma has its own Bermuda Triangle? That's a label bestowed upon Shaman's Portal, alias Beaver Dunes Park, in the Panhandle. The 520-acre park is blessed with 300 acres of sandhills, which makes it a go-to spot for ATV fun. But strange occurrences have taken place there, dating to the days of Spanish explorers, according to Travelock.com. The site, citing Coronado's journal, said three of his men disappeared into flashes of green light while exploring the area. Yeah, that'd sure get my attention. What else has vanished into Shaman's Portal? There's another layer of weird here if you want to include the urban legend about it being a UFO crash site. Stone Hill Stone Lion Inn. This bed and breakfast in Guthrie pops up on list of haunted venues in Oklahoma. It's allegedly haunted by a ghost child who has been known to squeeze the toes of sleeping guests or even crawl into bed with them, according to Travelock.com. Going with the flow, the Stone Mountain Lion Inn offers murder mysteries for guests. For information, go to stonelioninn.com. Cherokee Strip Museum Once a hospital, this museum in Alva is alleged to be haunted by patients who were victims of surgeries gone wrong. Said Travelock.com, From the unwavering gaze of mannequins to the uncomfortable feeling you get while roaming through the Cherokee Strip Museum in Alva, it's hard not to feel like you've been watched. If the otherworldly aspect doesn't have you running for the hills, the creepy displays will 
and there's a wide array of vintage medical instruments, including an embalming table. Historic Fort Reno Spirit tours take place at this ghostly attraction in El Reno. The next tour is Saturday, October the 24th. That was last year, folks, so you'd want to look at uh, any new ones. And it says go to fortreno.org slash ghost tours for details. The fort began as a military camp in 1874. German and Italian prisoners of war were housed at an internment camp here before World War II. Said Travelock.com, though no specific spirit has been identified, visitors to the fort have encountered a number of strange things, including faces in the windows, water faucets turning on by themselves in the visitor center, and mysterious orbs showing up in photographs. The Fort Washita Historic Site and Museum in Durant is another haunted Oklahoma fort. Gilcrease Museum and Kane's Ballroom Both of these historic Tulsa venues are allegedly haunted. Thomas Gilcrease's spirit wanders the grounds of the original Rock House and other areas, according to Travelock.com. According to TulsaSpiritTour.com, if you want a tour of local haunted sites. Sorry, check out that TulsaSpiritTour.com. You can feel the ghost of the past in a good way if you enter tradition-rich Kane's Ballroom. Other allegedly haunted performance venues in Oklahoma are Pahushka's Constantine Theater and Ponca City's Ponkin Theater. Steer clear of the balconies unless you want to find a ghost. So folks, there's a pretty good spattering of kind of weird and mysterious things in Oklahoma. And I hope that you did enjoy that, and especially to Bob. Bob, get better soon. I want to hear you back on the airwaves doing rantings of a fat man. That's Bob's podcast, everyone. Hey, folks, and the rest of these articles are from coasttocoastam.com. And those of you who have been listening to the program for a while will know that I get a lot of the news of the damned articles from there. And we've got a pretty good mix of different things here. Now, Lisa, this one's for you in North Carolina because I know that you've always found dinosaurs interesting. And this one is called says security camera films baby dinosaur dashing past Florida home. Got a bit of flubs tonight, folks. Don't know why I keep mispronouncing words, so sorry for that. Says a woman in Florida believes that her home security system captured footage of a baby dinosaur dashing through her yard. According to a local media report, the strange scene unfolded outside the residence of Christina Ryan in the city of Palm Coast. Early one morning last week, she says, her security picked up the presence of something in her yard and began filming. The oddity in question, as seen in the video, appears to be some kind of creature running past her house. Ryan expressed bewilderment over what the animal in the video could have been, indicating that any animal we can come up with that would be walking at 3.40 in the morning wouldn't walk this way. Left with, left with no solution to the mystery, the baffled homeowner mused that, Maybe I've watched Jurassic Park too many times but I see a raptor or other small dinosaur. Ryan claims that her assessment has been echoed by several of her friends who have seen the video. Some have argued that the creature could be a bird, but Ryan dismissed that explanation because whatever it appears, whatever it is appears to have front legs. As such, she declared, I'm sticking with raptor as the identity of the oddity. Meanwhile, viewers online have offered a variety of possibilities for what the mystery creature could have been, including a dog with a reflective collar or perhaps a Komodo dragon. What's your best guess for this animal spotted in Ryan's yard? So, folks, go and check out this video. I'm going to check it out now. And again, you can find a link in the show notes to all these articles, but especially these ones with video. 
it's important to uh, be able to see it. I'll tell you how short it is as well. It's only a very short clip, folks. It's only six seconds, so it's not very long. And this creature does move pretty fast. It does look like it's running on its back legs. Hmm. It's black and white. It's not super clear, but it does happen right in front of the camera. It is interesting. The way it runs. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll give it that. So, yeah, folks, you'll want to go and check that out. Lisa, you especially would want to check that out, I'd say. Now on to the next one here, folks. And this one says, Pentagon confirms recently leaked UFO photos and video are genuine. Now, this was from April 16th, so this actually was from last week when this came out. And I wanted to cover it over then, folks, but unfortunately, like I said, we just had time constraints with last week's show, so I'm covering it now. Now, this was an interesting video that came out, and what's happened is that basically the Pentagon has said, yes, this was filmed on a naval ship. So it says, in a rather remarkable admission, the Pentagon has confirmed that recently leaked photos and a video of a UFO are, in fact, genuine. The tantalizing trio of images, which were published by the website Mystery Wire earlier this month, show three unknown objects which were spotted and photographed by a Navy pilot back on March the 4th, 2019. Meanwhile, the footage features a puzzling pyramid-shaped craft of some kind which was filmed by personnel aboard the USS Russell off the coast of San Diego in July of 2019 and came to light last week via filmmaker and frequent coast-to-coast -coast guest Jeremy Corbell. As is customary in the world of UFO studies, the nature of the object seen in the photos and the video has been the subject of considerable debate. However, one aspect of the story surrounding the materials has been authorized as Pentagon spokeswoman Sue Go, I think it's Go, reportedly issued a statement saying that Indeed, they do show unidentified aerial phenomena that were captured by Navy personnel in 2019. Alas, she did not provide any further insight into the oddities. Explaining that to maintain operations, security, and to avoid disclosing information that may be useful to potential adversaries, DOD does not discuss publicly the details of either the observations or the examinations of reported incursions into our training ranges or designated airspace, including those incursions initially designated as UAPs. That said, Go did indicate that the mysterious UAP task force created by the Pentagon back in August of 2020 for the purpose of investigating such strange events has included these incidents in their ongoing examinations. Further insights into the incidents may be forthcoming later this year when an unclassified report on the UAP phenomena is due to be delivered to Congress by the Pentagon. Until then, speculation will undoubtedly continue to swirl around what exactly these objects could be, with some UFO investigators insisting they perform in a manner that is incongruous to our current technological abilities, while other researchers caution that the incursions into American airspace could actually be drones being controlled by our adversaries. Okay, folks, this is a very interesting case. And the reason I say that is that in going through research for tonight's program, I stumbled across an article, a post actually on either Black Vault or Above Top Secret. I think it was Above Top Secret, 
which I then shared with Dave from the old 77, Dave, who is our chapter president. And Dave went through the video, and Dave's quite a thorough and meticulous researcher. And Dave said, came back and said, hey, JT, I think that this guy's on to something, and I think that this might actually explain what this is. So I'm going to post a link to that post so you can go and look at the video yourselves if you would like. Again, I'm not out there to say any of this is real or false or anyone's lying or it's not what I try to do with the program because I want you to make up your own minds. But Dave is a pretty astute researcher of such things. And if Dave said that this has got some legs to it, it's got some legs to it. So you might want to go and check that out, folks. And as I say, what I'll do is I'll have a I'll have this article and then I'll just have a link that says like something like pyramid footage debunked question mark. Okay. So you can just click on that and check it out. Sorry, folks. I was just making it up as I went along there. Now, the next one here is quite interesting as it's from Australia. And I know I've got a few listeners in Australia and a few friends over there as well. And this one is titled watch ghost girl filmed on Australian highway with a question mark. An eerie piece of dash cam footage from Australia shows what appears to be a diminutive figure standing on a freeway at night, and some people suspect that the mysterious form could have been a ghost child. The odd encounter sighting reportedly occurred on Sunday evening as Mitch Kuhn was driving along the, the country's Hume Highway, much to his profound surprise as he zipped down the road going around 60 miles an hour, he suddenly sped past what seemed to be a small person wearing a blue coat and lurking in the left lane of the highway. Suspecting that he had just narrowly missed hitting a child that had wandered onto the freeway, Kuhn phoned the police to report the troubling situation. From there, the story takes a rather strange turn as the young man claims that he made a second call to the cops about 45 minutes later to follow up on his report and offer his dash cam footage, which can be seen above, so there's a video here, to possibly help in the case. According to Kuhn, he was told that the tot had been found and that authorities would not need his video, which he subsequently posted to social media. However, when an Australian media outlet looked into the weird incident, they were given an altogether different account. Police informed them that they had actually searched the area where Kuhn had seen the child for a whopping eight hours and found no sign of any youngster. Additionally, authorities say there were no reports of a missing person who might correspond with what the driver had seen. Taken together, some have theorized that perhaps Kuhn had filmed a ghost child on the highway, while others argue that the somewhat indecipherable anomaly was merely unidentified debris. What's your take on the curious footage? So, folks, I've had a look at this video, as I often do for you. And to me, look, this is just me. Doesn't look like a ghost child to me. Looks like something that's solid. It is an odd shape. I'll give it that. I don't know what it is. It looks almost to me like a melted lump of plastic or something. I've watched this, so the YouTube video has got it circling, circling, circling. It's almost like a bag or something, but it's standing up. So it's definitely upright on the road. It's in the far left-hand lane, which in Australia and New Zealand, that's the fast lane. Um yeah, I don't know quite what it is, but it looks solid. It doesn't look... The headlights are shining on it. It doesn't look like it's transparent, and who knows what it is. Um, maybe it will come out. 
oftentimes driving uh, any of you who are like me, I'm sure, that have driven on freeways and motorways, I'm sure you often see kind of weird debris on the highway. And at night, you know, lights can play strange tricks. But we'll find out. Um, I don't see any kind of humanly footage here. I'm looking at, uh, basically, I've got the video stopped now. And I don't see anything really human about it. I guess that because it's kind of the height, that's why he thought it was a ghost child. Or others thought it was a ghost child. But it doesn't really look like that to me personally. Okay, folks. So we're on to our next article here. And this is a very interesting one. So I've told you before that in the UK and Australia, not so much New Zealand, but especially Australia and the UK, they'll basically take bets on anything, the what they call the bookies or the bookmakers. So you can go in, and even if there's something that they don't have listed, you can say, hey, I want to bet on this or I want to bet on that. And there was a real touching story I remember several years ago about a man, an older man who had a certain kind of cancer. And he basically went to the bookmaker and he wanted to bet on how long he would live with this cancer. And so he said, I want to beat the record for the person who's lived the longest with this cancer, whatever it was. And the bookmaker took the odds. And I personally thought it was really touching because this guy was betting on himself to, to beat the cancer, you know, not outlive it totally, not get rid of it, but outlive anyone else who had had it. And the guy lived past whatever the record was, and then he immediately wanted to bet again. And the bookmaker said normally he wouldn't take any bets of something like that, but if it motivated this guy to live longer, then he was happy he could help. And, and I thought it was a pretty good story, you know, pretty positive story all around. The guy who had cancer got some more money to enjoy his last days, and the bookmaker was helping motivate him by doing it. Well, anyway, this one says bookmaker slashes odds on ET disclosure. In anticipation of the forthcoming Pentagon UFO report due to be released later this year, again, due to be released, I've given you my thoughts on it before, an Irish bookmaker has reportedly reduced their odds on extraterrestrial disclosure to a significant degree. Known for offering a vast array of novelty bets, including some centered around the Loch Ness Monster, the website Paddy Power has long offered annual wagers regarding whether or not the reality of, U of ETs would be confirmed in a particular year. For 2021, they had originally set the odds at a not altogether outlandish 200 to 1. However, in light of an impending report on the phenomenon to be issued by the U.S. government, they say that the changes... The chances have changed dramatically, and the site has now pegged the possibility at a mere 20 to 1. For those who are particularly bullish on the idea that extraterrestrial disclosure is imminent, the website is offering 50 to 1 odds of the big event happening by the end of April, which is down from the previous chances of a whopping 500 to 1. So you got another week on that bet. Should one wish to hedge the bets and simply wager that aliens will be confirmed by the end of the decade, the group is offering 7 to 1 odds on such a scenario unfolding. And for those who are pessimistic about the nature of these hypothetical ETs, the website has you covered by offering 500 to 1 odds on humanity going to war with aliens by 2030. That's a pretty good bet. Whether you would be able to collect on such a bet is another matter entirely, since battling our extraterrestrial overlords may take precedence over cashing in on an unfolding invasion. 
Well, uh, yeah, interestingly enough, folks, last night, again, I was just sitting there with William flipping through the TV channels, and War of the Worlds was on the 1953 version. So, yeah, interestingly enough, so I watch War of the Worlds, or a good bit of it, and here there is this uh, article on the odds of us having a war with an E.T. civilization. Yeah, exciting times we live in, isn't it? So on to the next article here. And this has got a E.T. or purported E.T. tie-in as well. Earlier this year, I covered a similar case in Oregon uh, about a mutilated cattle. And again, this is another one. Mysterious series of cattle mutilations in Oregon continue to stump investigators. New details have emerged concerning a series of mysterious cattle mutilations that occurred in Oregon earlier this year and have left authorities scratching their heads. So again, I would just about bet this is the one I've already covered. Yeah, and it looks like it is. The spate of puzzling slangs first made news back in March when the Crook County Sheriff's Office issued a press release cautioning residents about the curious incidents and indicating that an investigation was underway. Although the bulletin was rather short on specifics, aside from the tantalizing observation that the cause of these cattle deaths was not natural, details surrounding the puzzling strings of cases has finally come to light. According to a local media report, the strangeness started on February 27th when a rancher discovered that one of his cattle had perished under perplexing circumstances wherein parts of its body had been removed with what appeared to be surgical precision and creatures that normally would scavenge the body refused to touch it. Six days later, authorities were called out to a different ranch where another cow had been killed under similarly suspicious circumstances. In this instance, Investigators noted that the unfortunate animal appeared to have had a patch of hair removed and may have been injected with a needle. The series continues on March 6th, when on a third ranch, another cow was killed in a manner that appeared to match the previous two cases. Finally, the unfortunate rancher who lost his cow in the second incident phoned police to report that he had lost another animal to whatever was behind the killings and that once again, the creature's body parts were removed with remarkably clean cuts that were not in keeping with a natural predator. In this instance, an experienced veterinarian who had performed post-mortem examinations on dead cattle agreed with investigators that something seems amiss about the way in which the animal had perished. As of now, authorities in Crook County have no answers as to what could be behind the separate but seemingly connected cattle mutilation cases. We are not speculating on how these are happening, Sheriff John Gottney said as we try to keep an open mind and look at all possibilities. One avenue which may be explored by investigators that was unavailable to cattle mutilation researchers in the past is to possibly obtain a search warrant for cell phone activity from when and where the incidents occur. That's a good idea. Samples from the downed animals are also being tested in hopes that they could provide some clue as to what led to the creature's demise. So hopefully, folks, we do get an answer to that one because I like following these kind of ongoing cases and then being able to update you. So the last article for the News of the Damned for the night that I've got here is quite an interesting one. Now, I picked this out specifically for our chapter president in New Jersey. So Timmy from Ace of Cups Readings, as soon as I saw New Jersey, Timmy, I had to cover this for you. So this one says UFO detector sparks bomb scare. Authorities at a state forest in New Jersey were forced to call in a bomb squad 
following the discovery of a bizarre-looking contraption described as an instrument for identifying UFOs. The weird case reportedly unfolded last Friday morning when someone visited the Wharton State Forest, stumbled upon the odd gadget, which bore the label UFO Detector Site, and smartly phoned the police. Upon their arrival, investigators from the New Jersey State Park Police examined the strange object and, erring on the side of caution, brought in a special bomb-sniffing canine unit to determine if the device was dangerous. In detailing the incident on Facebook, the department indicated that after the benign nature of the UFO detector was confirmed, they disarmed the unit by unplugging the headphone wire from the block of wood and the soup can it was plugged into. In their recounting, they went on to muse that, although humankind and the visitors to New Jersey state parks appreciate an extraterrestrial early warning device like this, we should not be finding them in our state parks. Based on the rather rudimentary design of the machine, one is left to wonder if it was the creation of an imaginative child rather than a genuine instrument for spotting UFOs, since detecting an ET vehicle likely requires more technology than a block of wood, a headphone wire, and an empty can of soup. That said, should an alien invasion occur, and it starts in a New Jersey state forest, authorities will no doubt regret having let their guard down. So yeah, that was a bit of a chuckle and a tongue-in-cheek one, folks. And I hope that you enjoyed that article and all of the News of the Damned articles for this evening. And as I say, as always, there's a link in the show notes if you would like to go in there and find more. Now, folks, we're now going to be moving on to the fascinating encounter on a Minnesota rural road in August of 1979. Now, folks, you often hear in instances of these UFO cases, well, where's the evidence? Where's the ashtray from the UFO? Where's a where's a tail light from a UFO or a cigarette lighter? Well, folks, sometimes you do get what you ask for. And believe it or not, this case has evidence, and it happened over 40 years ago, and that evidence still exists, and you, my friends, can actually go and see it for yourself. So we're now going to be getting into the fascinating and intriguing case of the Val Johnson UFO encounter. Sounding groggy but calm, the Marshall County Deputy Sheriff radioed in from his patrol car at 2.19 a.m. on a lonely country road in northwestern Minnesota. Something just hit my car, said Val Johnson. I don't know how to explain it. Strange. Something attacked my car. He'd seen a bright light in the sky, he said, visible for miles across the flat prairie, and drove towards it to investigate. Fellow officers listening in quickly got on the radio and began speculating about what had happened. Perhaps he'd been hit by a small car, one suggested. Johnson cut them short. It wasn't a vehicle, he snapped. I don't know what the hell it was. Four decades later, no one else knows what the hell it was either. Johnson, 35 at the time, had been with the Marshall County Sheriff's Department for almost three years. Quiet and well-respected, He'd been making a routine patrol on rural roads when he saw the light in the night sky, just across the Red River from Grafton, North Dakota. He wondered if it might be an aircraft from the nearby Air Force Base in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Johnson drove toward the light, driving at 65 miles an hour to reach it. The light suddenly zoomed head-on at Johnson's patrol car. As he later described it, what was there, all of a sudden, was here. He was blinded heard the sound of breaking glass, and passed out. The next thing he knew, some 40 minutes later, he woke up. The car was stopped sideways, halfway off the road, having somehow driven itself 
almost a thousand feet. He radioed headquarters at 2.19 a.m. to request assistance. Soon another deputy arrived, who called an ambulance. He was transferred to Warren Hospital, where he would undergo several examinations and x-rays. It was found that he had damage to his eyes, very similar to that a welder may incur while plying his trade. Further examinations also found slight damage to the inner eye, consistent with being exposed to a particularly bright light at close range. The doctor who examined Johnson found him to be in a mild state of shock. His eyes and face were burned. Doctors later described them as welder's burns, and he had a lump on his forehead. The windshield on Johnson's squad car had cracked in a spiderweb pattern. There was a crack in his windshield on the driver's side that ran from top to bottom with four apparent impacts. There was a hole in one of his red flashers. There was a flat-bottom circular dent on the left side of his front hood, about a half an inch in diameter, very close to the windshield. The shaft of the roof antenna was bent over at a 60-degree angle, starting about 6 inches above its base. The trunk antenna was bent over at 90 degrees, but only near the top. No damage occurred to the car's regular antenna on the front hood. Essentially, all the damage on the car occurred on the left or driver's side. Both the electric clock in his car and his wind-up Timex wristwatch had stopped for 14 minutes. He had synchronized them at the start of his shift, as he did every day. Describing the incident later, Johnson said he saw a bright light about a foot across, hovering about three feet off the ground. Suddenly, he said, the light went at him, and white light engulfed the vehicle. Johnson had to wear eye patches for about 10 hours after the incident, and it was a couple of days before his vision returned to normal. The following is Val's report in full. This is Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson. Our report in connection with an incident which happened August 27, 1979, at approximately 1.40 a.m., western section of Marshall County, approximately 10 miles west of Stephen, Minnesota. The officer was on routine patrol, westbound down Marshall County Road, number 5. I got to the intersection of number 5 and Minnesota State, number 220. When I looked down south number 220 to check for traffic, I noticed a very bright, brilliant light, 8 to 10 inches in diameter, 3 to 4 feet off the ground. The edges were very defined. I thought at first, perhaps this could be an aircraft in trouble, as it appeared to be a landing light from an aircraft. I proceeded south at number 220. I proceeded about a mile and three-tenths of a mile, and, or four-tenths of a mile, when the light intercepted my vehicle, causing damage to a headlight, putting a dent in the hood, breaking the windshield, and bending antennas on top of the vehicle. At this point, at the interception of the light, I was rendered either unconscious, neutralized, or unknowing for a period of approximately 39 minutes. From the point of intersection, my police vehicle proceeded south in a straight line 854 feet, at which point the brakes were engaged by forces unknown to myself, as I do not remember doing so, and I left about approximately 99 feet of black marks on the highway before coming to rest sideways in the road with the grill of my hood facing in an easterly direction at 2.19 a.m. I radioed at 10.88, officer needs assistance, to my dispatcher in Warren. He dispatched an officer from Stephen who came out, ascertained the situation as best he could, called for the Stephen ambulance to transport me to Warren Hospital for further tests, x-rays, and observation. At the time the officer arrived, I, com I complained about having very sore eyes. 
At Warren Hospital, it was diagnosed that I had a mild case of welder's burns to my eyes. My eyes were treated with some salve and adhesive bandages put over and instructed to keep them on for the remainder of the day or approximately 24 hours. At 11 a.m., Sheriff Dennis Brackey, my employer, picked me up at my residence in Oslo and transported me to the ophthalmologist at Grand Forks, North Dakota. He examined my eyes and said I had some irritation to the inner portions of my eye, which could have been caused by seeing a bright light after dark. That is all I have to add, except to say that my timepiece in the police vehicle and my mechanical wristwatch were both lacking 14 minutes of time to the minute. Now, folks, first and foremost, back before we had digital watches, you could only get mechanical watches, which are the wind-up ones with the battery. Some of them don't need a battery, but you get the drift. So this was a mechanical wristwatch and a mechanical car clock. I've seen photos of the clock, so it's not a digital clock, just to be clear. Now, folks, I've been very lucky to come across four excellent pieces of audio for this episode. One of them has actually got these audio calls from Val Johnson back to base. So over the radio. So first and foremost, I'm going to play you a very short clip that gives you an excellent synopsis of what happened. And then I'll include the other clips later on in the episode. One such case, which is difficult to explain, is that of police deputy Val Johnson from Oslo, Minnesota. The light was coming at me. It was extremely bright. The inside of the car lit up. I can remember that. And uh, it was a very dazzling, brilliant occurrence. His story is that while driving along a country road on night patrol, he saw a light in the far distance. After he'd been watching it for a while, it started moving towards him. He maintains that he blacked out, and when he came to, his car had been thrown across the road. Later examination revealed that the car itself had been damaged. A dented top, smashed headlights, shattered windshield, and a bent antenna. Something did strike my vehicle. Uh, something didn't want me there, apparently, or it was, you know, I, I can't put a judgment on it. Uh, I really don't know how to classify it. I, don't, I can't classify it as an attack. Perhaps it was an escape. Now, folks, I hope you found value in that short clip. I like to include things like this for any of these cases that I can get my hands on for a few reasons. One of them is the closer that we get to the actual event having happened, the better the evidence often is. And in this instance, I feel that you can hear some of the shock in Johnson's voice when he's calling back to base. Very interesting and very important to consider when we get down to the potential causes and some of the claims that have been made about this case over the years. Now, as you can imagine, it didn't take long for the press to get involved. Now, this article I'm going to read you was from the Grand Forks Herald, and it was published on the 29th of August, 1979. So this was only two days after this actually happened. Deputy is knocked out in UFO attack. Patrol vehicle was damaged by mysterious bright light by Jim Durkin. Herald Staff Rider. Warren, Minnesota. Val Johnson, a deputy for the Marshall County Sheriff's Department, doesn't know exactly what happened to him early Monday morning. He does know it was something strange. Johnson was on patrol about 1.40 a.m. when he was attacked by an unidentified thing. It dove at his car and caused him to lose control. 
It then left him on an isolated rural highway, injured and unable to account for 30, 39 minutes. The 35-year-old deputy said he was about 10 miles west of Stephen, Minnesota, when he spotted a bright beam of light about 8 inches in diameter. Like a spotlight, he said. It was hovering 3 to 4 feet off the highway, he said, and it was only about 2.5 miles away when he first saw it. At first, he said he believed it was a landing light for a small aircraft. He drove toward the light, watching it hover. When he got within about one and a half miles, the light came at him, he said. It sat there and appeared to be stationary, he said. But when I got closer, boom, it was right there, just right now. I heard glass breaking and saw the inside of the car light up real bright with white light. It was very, very extremely bright. That's all I can remember. I lost contact with the time span or consciousness or something. Authorities from the Sheriff's Department have calculated that the incident happened at 1.40 p.m. Sorry, a.m. It was not until 2.19 a.m. that Johnson called on his police radio for help. After the light hit my vehicle, I don't remember a thing. I remember when I came to. I opened my right eye and saw the red engine light on my dashboard and figured my car must have stopped. According to a tape recording of Johnson's call to the department, he gave his location, one mile south of the intersection of County Road 5 and Highway 220, and said he needed assistance. He didn't say what was wrong. Dispatcher Peter Bauer immediately called for other officers to help. A short while later, Bauer called Johnson back and asked him what had happened. Something just hit my car. I don't know how to explain it. Strange, something attacked my car. Johnson appeared, answered in a groggy-sounding voice. Are you all right? Bauer asked. I think so. I can't see very well. I don't think I'm losing any blood anywhere, Johnson replied. A few minutes later, Deputy Greg Winskowski, who was responding to help Johnson, asked him if he knew what the vehicle had hit him looked like. It wasn't a vehicle, Greg. I don't know what the hell it was, Johnson said. When Wiskowski got to the scene, he found Johnson's car sideways on the road. He called an ambulance from the Warren, Minnesota hospital. Johnson was taken to the hospital and treated for welder's burns to his eyes. He also had a bump on his forehead, which he believes happened when he hit the steering wheel. Patches were put on his eyes, and six hours later, Johnson was taken to Grand Forks to an eye specialist. That specialist agreed the painful injury to his eyes could have been caused by a bright flash of light. Further investigation by deputies at the scene showed one headlight in Johnson's car had been smashed. Also, there was a small, round dent in the hood, a smashed windshield, and a broken red light on top of the car. Two steel antennas, which were spring-mounted and stuck above the car, were bent at nearly 90-degree angles. No evidence of another vehicle could be found within a mile of Johnson's car. Reports showed that Johnson traveled 854 feet from the point of impact before he applied his brakes and skidded for another 99 feet. I don't even remember hitting the brakes, Johnson said. He added that he didn't hear anything and didn't smell any exhaust fumes. Also, a mechanical wristwatch Johnson was wearing and an electric clock in the patrol car both stopped for 14 minutes. Deputies said they were certain that both Johnson's watch and the car clock were accurate before the incident. Johnson said he set both timepieces when he began patrolling that night and checked them several times. During the evening, we've had something here and we don't really know what it is, said Sheriff Dennis Brecky. I'm not reporting that we believe in flying saucers or don't believe in flying saucers. He said he only wanted to report the facts of the incident, 
collected by his department, even though many things couldn't be explained. What he, Johnson, seen, he's seen. None of us are trained to explain things we're not used to seeing. A.J. Hendry, or sorry, Al Hendry, chief investigator of the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois, came to Warren Tuesday morning to investigate the report. He said he had contacted five Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, organizations in the area, including Grand Forks Air Force Base, and all of them told him they saw nothing on radar and had no evidence of any aircraft activity in the area. Hendry said he ruled out the possibility of a low-flying aircraft because of those reports and other reasons, including the burns to Johnson's eyes. The unexplained reason, the timepieces stopped, and the velocity behind the force which broke the antenna, sorry, bent the antenna. This case has some clues, Hendry said, the damage to the car, the burns on his eyes, and the clocks are all unusual clues. The burns show the brightness of the light, and the antennas show the velocity at which whatever hit them was moving. Otherwise, the springs would have bent, and the antennas wouldn't have. Whatever hit them must have been traveling extremely fast to bend the antennas without moving the springs. Hendry said his office receives about 1,000 reports of UFOs a year. About 90% of them fall through, immediately. Most of his investigations are done by telephone. It's rare for me to come out and investigate a report, but something like this where you have the car, which could be measured and photographed, will provide some concrete evidence. It's certainly as good a case as I've seen in the past year. It is the third direct run-in between a vehicle and a UFO Hendry has investigated in approximately a year. The investigator said he planned to go to the site of the impact and run some tests to find if there was a strong magnetic field which could have caused the timepieces to stop. Brecky said his department had checked the area with Geiger counters but found nothing unusual. I've rolled many possibilities around in my head, Johnson said. It was something I've never seen before and never want to see again. It was somewhat aggressive and certainly didn't want me to be there. I'm not that much worse for it. I've gone through a little discomfort is all. I knew where I was, and I know I was upright, but I was unsure of what in the world happened. Both Brecky and Deputy Everett Doolittle said the only reason they let news of the event out was because Johnson was taken to hospital by ambulance and several people had heard rumors. To be perfectly honest, if the only people who knew about it were in our department, we wouldn't have told anybody except the UFO reporting service, Doolittle said. But since this information got out in rumors, we wanted to put the facts out. We have and let the people draw their own conclusions. That's what I try and do on the show, folks. We certainly can't explain it. All we can do is tell people what we know. You wouldn't believe some of the stories that were going around. We just have to hope that we don't come off sounding like we're all nuts. I know Val, and if he said it happened, it happened. So there you go, folks. So there's there's an excellent article, and that was quite hard to find, folks. Some of these old newspaper articles can be quite hard to track down. Investigations occurred immediately, both by the Sheriff's Department and by investigators from the Center of UFO Studies. The police determined that Johnson's car traveled about 950 feet after the first damage occurred. Initial reactions and suspicions were that the incident was ball lightning while others pointed to the overhead power lines at the scene itself as a likely source of the bright light that had knocked Johnson unconscious. Johnson, it was later found, had burned retinas from exposure to extremely bright light. He also had no idea how the car had stopped. 
although it left 100 feet of skid marks. Sheriff Dennis Brecky wasted no time calling in experts to investigate. Within days, Warren was visited by a metallurgical engineer from Honeywell, a glass expert from the Ford Motor Company, and consultant in hyperspectral imagery from a Brainerd laboratory, and Alan Hendry, a ufologist from the Center of UFO Studies in Chicago. Windshield expert Meridian French from Ford noted after examining the windshield fractures that even after several days of reflection on the crack patterns, an apparent sequence of fractures, I still have no explanation for what seem to be inward and outward forces acting almost simultaneously. I can only conclude that all cracks were from mechanical forces of unknown origin. Other investigators, however, would suggest that the antennas were bent out of shape by whipping forward when the brakes were applied. They would then strike the red dome of the police lights, causing them to bend from the heat. However, when tests were conducted in Minneapolis's Honeywell Labs, it was clear that the bending of the antennas was by force and not due to the intense heat and whipping motion. A metal expert from Honeywell Labs examined the car's two weirdly bent antennas and came away puzzled. The bending, he said, seemed to have been caused by high-velocity blasts of air. A perplexed expert from Ford Motor Company wrote that the car's multiple windshield cracks were caused by unknown inward and outward forces acting almost simultaneously. All of the damage to the car, from front to back, was within a straight line only one foot wide. The experts could only speculate on the cause. It's hard to find one neat explanation, Henry said at the time. The Ford Glass expert called the pattern of windshield cracks extremely unusual, adding that he'd never seen anything like it. The engineer said the best fit for all the physical evidence pointed to a highly charged electrical thing with enough mass and momentum to create the effects. Ultimately, Brecky closed the investigation without reaching any conclusions. Over the years, the original case file and audio recording of Johnson's dispatch call have vanished from the sheriff's files, though the museum has copies of many of the documents and portions of the audio recording. So folks, now I've got another excellent little clip here to play for you that's got a very good synopsis of what happened on that night, including these audio recordings or what exists to them. And they also talk about the damage to the car and reasons why this would be very difficult to hoax, whether it was at the time or later on. So I'm going to play that clip for you now. That left a victim with both psychological and physical damage. One year before the Cash Landrum incident, on August the 27th, 1979, Officer Val Johnson was on patrol in his police car outside Warren, Minnesota. At 1.45 a.m., a strange light appeared, hovering above the road in the distance. Deputy Johnson was traveling at 65 miles an hour when the light began rushing towards his car. There was an impact and Officer Johnson lost consciousness. These are the actual police recordings from that night. Johnson sounds dazed as he reports the accident to dispatch. 407, what's the problem? I don't know. Someone just hit my car. I don't know how to explain it. Strange. Johnson's police car had a broken windscreen creases and dents along the length of the vehicle, and the antenna was bent at a 90-degree angle. These days, Johnson refuses to talk about the incident, 
and has moved to another city. Instead, Ted sets out to meet former sheriff Dennis Brecky, who was in charge of the investigation that night. He hasn't spoken about Johnson's encounter for two decades. As far as Mel Johnson was concerned, you know, he was a good person, and I never doubted his word at any time. But one aspect of Johnson's story is almost impossible to explain, and it seems to defy time itself. His clock in the car was 14 minutes slow, and we went to check his wristwatch at night, and that was 14 minutes slow. And so the clock in the car was running again when you recovered the car. So whatever had happened had stopped it temporarily for 14 minutes. I gather he was a very meticulous officer. He, he set his clock very carefully that on his wristwatch and the car. And every oh, he reported in. The loss of time is impossible to prove. But the physical damage to the car was very real. Bill and Pat tracked down Deputy Greg Winskowski, who was first on the scene that night. He's agreed to meet them at the site of the incident on Highway 220. What did you find when you got there? And I found someone took a shot at him. He was slumped over. I got him back. Again, I asked him, what kind of car was it? He says, it was no car. He says, it was a light. A light. What kind of light? From a car or what? He says, no, it came out of the air. They came right at me. Deputy Winskowski was one of the first to see the strange damage to the car. The antennas were bent, the windshield, and uh, the headlight was out. And I could see a faint tire impressions that stretched for about 850 feet, and then solid black marks for about another 99 feet where like, the brakes were locked up. So would an accident investigator say the engine went off at this point? That was the only explanation I could get. Could the light have disabled the police car's engine? causing it to skid off the road almost a thousand feet from the point of impact. One of the only corresponding UFO cases involving damage to a vehicle happened outside Mondrabilla in Australia in the early hours of January 20th, 1988. As in Val Johnson's encounter, a car was run off the road by a strange light. But the incident didn't end there. The family in the car claimed that the light lifted their vehicle from above and dropped it further down the road. Later, the Australian police would confirm a blown out tire, four separate indentations on the car's roof, and note the presence of a fine black ash on the exterior of the vehicle. Though almost 30 years has passed since Val Johnson's incident, remarkably, physical evidence has survived in the form of his police car. Ted has brought in a crash expert to help him examine the effects of this strange encounter. I'm about to meet with Professor George Bible, who studies the forensics of airplane crashes, which I think is really relevant here. So George, here it is. 1977 Ford LTD. I think the damage was mostly down the driver's side, right? So there's the headlight. Some kind of impact around here. Almost all of the, the reflector is gone as well. The clear glass front's all gone. Look here, the impact marks on the hood. Definitely some kind of deformation though. That impact looks a little odd to me. It doesn't seem like that could happen from an impact horizontally. That looks more like a vertical. And then here's the windshield. Can you make out where the impact marks are? 
Well, hard to say. The windshield expert thinks the windshield had two impacts from the outside and one impact from the inside, which is unusual. The Ford guy said they all happened within a few milliseconds, and they could estimate the speed being very rapid. The description of the accident and the damage to the car don't seem to add up. Clearly, something hit the vehicle. But if Johnson was traveling at 65 miles an hour and collided with something head-on, the police car should have suffered more damage. One piece of evidence may show the true power of the impact. And here are the two bent antennae. One is bent almost 90 degrees, and I gave the sight of it just couldn't happen from an air blaster from impact of the hard object. Professor Bible shows why he believes the antenna couldn't have been bent by a minor impact or wind blast. This is a high-strength steel wire, similar to what they had in the antenna. And if you try to bend it back 90 degrees, it has tremendous spring back. Right, you're only getting uh, about 30 degrees out of it. So if it impacts a solid object and it bend it back 90 degrees, you can't really bend it further than that right. uh, with a solid object or a wind blast. Now, uh, it, it, you just can't bend it 90 degrees. Right. Now, you could bend it 90 degrees by hand. You gotta bend it more than 90 degrees and let it spring back. Is it possible that Johnson faked the incident and bent the antenna by hand? He said that the antenna, while it did get bent to 90 degrees, roughly, that there was still residue left over from bug strikes. Yes. So how would you how would you keep that with your if, if it was handled manually? Well, I don't know. That might be a mystery. If the antenna was forcibly bent by Johnson, the insect residue should have come off onto his hands. But that's not the case. Well, George, we've had a good look at the car. Is there an explanation for all this? No, I don't think so. Any one single little piece of damage is pretty ordinary, but if you put it all together, it is kind of hard to explain. And conversely, something that might have bent those antenna, I don't see how whatever that was could have caused these impacts on the front. That's correct. I don't have a good answer to that either. Lost time, an unconscious policeman, and inexplicable damage to a car. Were all these strange effects really the result of a UFO collision? So that's quite an interesting clip, folks, and that's why I love playing things like this that I can find. Because, again, it points out some of the small details, like the fact that if Val would have bent the antennas himself, even if he could have, and all signs point to the inability of just a person with their hands being able to bend it in this fashion, the bug residue from the antennas, and for those of you who have spent any time in the Midwest in the U.S., you know that everywhere you drive, especially in the summer, your car gets covered with bug residue. Well, this bug residue would have come off in his hands, and they would have picked this up later when they did the investigation. And like I say, the evidence is still there. The car is still there over 40 years later. So yeah, very interesting clip, I thought. Now, folks, as with the Lonnie Zamora case that I've already covered, what was thought to be a single witness case would later prove to be not so cut and dried. As you can see from this article that I found, now unfortunately I couldn't find the entire article. When I went to click the link to the article, it was expired, and oftentimes with cases like this, you'll stumble across an awesome write-up that might be four, five, six years or older, and when you go to click that link, that website no longer exists, or the link no longer exists. So unfortunately, I only could find 
this small snippet. The museum display includes a testimonial from Everest and Kathy Ruzica, a Grafton, North Dakota couple who said they saw a bright flash of light the night Johnson said he had a run-in with something unexplainable. Reached by phone at their home, which is not far from the Stephen, Minnesota area where Johnson's car was found, the Ruzikas vividly recall the incident. It was an extremely bright flash. I just kind of yelled, look at that, Everest Ruzika said, describing the moment he saw something weird in the eastern sky as they were driving home that night. His wife was a bit sleepy during the ride, but she said her husband's shout woke her in time to see a blinding burst of light. Everest Ruzika said he suspended he suspected an earthly explanation for what he saw. A government experiment, perhaps. But at first he wasn't keen on telling anyone about the episode. I really didn't want to get involved. At the same time, I hated to see what they were doing to the deputy, Ruzika said, referring to the grief Johnson took from some people. The incident left Brecky philosophical. We're sitting here on this planet. It's possible there could be people in other places, he said. Brecky said Johnson left his job not long after the incident but he isn't sure where he ended up. Now, folks, there'll be more on that later on about what happened to Val Johnson and where he went and why. Now, there's another little-known encounter, folks, that I just wanted to cover over, and I'd never heard of this encounter. And again, this is why I love doing these episodes in the investigation, because I'm always learning as well as you learning by listening. Over 40 years ago, a Minnesota police officer's vehicle was struck by a UFO. Officer Val Johnson wasn't the only one to encounter a strange light in the middle of the night in late August 1979. Just two days after the Minnesota deputy sheriff's car was hit by a UFO, an almost identical encounter occurred near Vermilion, South Dakota. What has been forgotten is that a similar incident occurred two days later, 400 miles away, near Vermilion. Russ Johnson, who was no relation to Val Johnson, told police he was driving alone west of Vermilion, when he saw a light just above the road. The light suddenly accelerated towards him and engulfed his car in a bright light. He closed his eyes as the light approached, but opened them just in time to see the light speed away. Unlike Deputy Sheriff Johnson's story, Russ Johnson suffered no injury or damage to his vehicle. One might suppose that the story of Deputy Johnson inspired a copycat report, but QFOS, investigator Bradley Ayers, dismissed that possibility, saying, Johnson... Johnson's case hadn't been made public at the time the South Dakota event was reported. These two late August events preceded a UFO flap with several Minnesota and western Wisconsin encounters through the fall of 1979. County officials wanted to fix the car and put it back out on patrol. Instead, it was left untouched and displayed at the Marshall County Fair. The car proved to be so popular that Sheriff Dennis Brecky donated it to the Settler Square Historical Museum in Warren. It's been there ever since. The copper-colored 1977 Ford LTD is an odd counterpoint to the typical county museum relics around it. An old buggy, a plow, washing machines, etc. But according to Kent Broughton, president of the Historical Society, it's definitely the number one attraction at the museum. Kent, who remembers the incident when it happened, said that the car's popularity has never sagged. People come from all over, he said. Some people lay on the floor and look underneath it. One time I saw a guy with a black light flashlight going over the car. Kent said that over the years he's heard enough stories from locals to convince him that what happened to Johnson wasn't a hoax. 
but the idea that the car could harbor any undiscovered secrets at this point seems unlikely. Although the car isn't roped off, the museum prefers that its visitors look, but don't touch. There's some people to this day who wonder why they don't fix it, Kent said of the car. Other people, when they come, all they want to do is see the car. One person who apparently would rather not see it is former Deputy Sheriff Johnson. Kent said that Johnson has never visited the car, no longer lives in the area, and prefers to keep a low profile. Sometimes he'll just talk about what happened, said Kent, but for the most part, he won't. The incident has been called one of the top 10 most significant UFO encounters ever recorded, folks. Now, over the last 40 years, a lot's happened. Paranormal TV shows like UFO Files and Mysteries at the Museum filmed reenactments. Even now, people debate the legitimacy of the encounter on online forums. No cause could be found for the event, including collision with another vehicle or a low-flying plane, or a hoax on the part of Johnson, or anything else. But one thing is strikingly absent from the small-town museum, the TV shows, and the online discussions. Val Johnson. When you try and track down Val Johnson, people tend to say he's hard to find, that he's still haunted by what happened to him over 40 years ago. Sheriff Brecky's wife Louise said Johnson hasn't kept in touch with his old colleagues in Marshall County for three decades, aside from a letter he sent a few years back with no return address. Now folks, we do know where Val Johnson is. He's now 77 and living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. He doesn't talk much about that night over 40 years ago. In the months after the incident, he gave dozens of interviews. The National Enquirer offered him $1,000 to go under hypnosis. He declined. He did appear on That's Incredible, a popular TV show at the time, during which he reenacted the event. Upon reflection, we've, meaning my family, have come to the conclusion that perhaps the creator has made some things we can't see or readily identify, he said on the broadcast. After that, he declined further interviews and rarely spoke publicly about the incident. I looked up at the sky and said, well, shucks, what happened, Johnson recalled. And then I shuffled on with my life. He had small kids to raise back then. Hitting a ball of light and ending up in a ditch wasn't close to the most important things going on in his life at the time. For almost a year after the incident, his phone hardly stopped ringing. He's quoted at the time by Associated Press writer Barbara Dewey saying his wife was run ragged by the constant calls. He appeared on Good Morning America and in dozens of newspapers across the country. For a while, he was a very big deal. And then other stories came along and pushed me off the front page, he said. Thank goodness. Johnson stayed on as a deputy for a while after the incident. Then he took a job as chief of police in the nearby town of Oslo, Minnesota. Locals, he said, never questioned his ability to enforce the law. For the first three years, it was on my mind daily, he said. After that, I went on with my life. It's not a defining incident in my life. To those who suggested he made up the story to win publicity, he had a ready reply. I'm not running for public office. I don't have vitamins to sell you, he said. This is what happened to me. If you choose to believe me, great. If you choose not to believe me, that's okay, too. For years, people sometimes showed up at his front porch with theories about his experience in Marshall County. We'd sit in the backyard with lemonade and talk, he said. They'd tell me what they thought happened to me, and I'd nod at the appropriate times. Eventually, they'd go away. In Warren, these many years later, people still don't know quite what to think. I don't not believe it, said Lori Bennett, a staff member at the museum. Some people are like, it's a bunch of crap, and other people are really into it, said the museum director. 
I think the universe is so huge, who knows what's out there? It's a possibility. There's lots of things that are pretty strange. Despite the initial suggestions of ball lightning as an explanation, following further investigations, including by the Center for UFO Studies, the cause of the encounter remains unexplained. Furthermore, there's no evidence whatsoever that Johnson had manufactured any part of the encounter. And what's more, his character and credibility were generally impeccable. There were also several further intriguing details that would come to light as the various investigations and discussions of the case continued. For example, by pure chance, Johnson had received dental work just prior to the incident, with further follow-up work due after the encounter. During the first dental procedure, x-rays were taken as part of preparations for follow-up work. These x-rays would show that Johnson's bridge work on his front teeth was completely as it should be. However, during the follow-up procedure, the bridge work was no longer intact, and what's more, they were broken at the gums. This should have resulted in massive swelling and severe pain for Johnson. However, he suffered from neither. Was this damage to Johnson's bridge work the result of physical impact? It is perhaps interesting that he would state in the days after he felt as though he had been hit in the face with a 400-pound pillow. Now, folks, I've got another clip here just to kind of show you what's gone on in the 40 years since this incident. And again, it's the typical kind of mass media BS of a local station there in Minnesota having a bit of a joke about, oh, oh, well, some of these UFO sightings are from people having too much whiskey. But nonetheless, I thought it was interesting just to kind of bring you up on what people think about the case in the area. So I'm going to play that clip for you now. All right, every now and then, someone calls 911 about mysterious objects in the sky. Yeah, most can be explained away as atmospheric conditions or aircraft or sometimes just too much whiskey, if you know what I'm saying. But to this day, a Minnesota UFO sighting from the 70s is considered more credible than most, in part because of who called it in from the road. Tonight, we get a close encounter with a squad car that is still cloaked in mystery as we go finding Minnesota. It's one thing for a place to stand out for its extra kindness or extra comfort. In Marshall County, it's the prospect of an extraterrestrial that's drawn worldwide attention. And what he saw was a bright object, maybe like a foot diameter, about three and a half feet off the ground. It was along a rural highway on August 27, 1979, in the middle of the night. Marshall County Deputy Val Johnson was alone on patrol. As he explained it in the news reports, what was there all of a sudden was here, so the light just shot at him and it you know, like engulfed his car in light and you know, blinded him. 36 years later, the deputy's squad car is still what brings most people in to the Marshall County Museum. And then, of course, the windshield is uh, broken, something you can see where it hit. Herb Morstead was a fellow yeah, deputy at the time, at a loss to explain the antennas warped in different directions, the broken headlight and the dented hood. Whatever happened, there was evidence. The dashboard clock stopped for 14 minutes, as did Deputy Johnson's watch before starting up again. You can see that it wasn't Val Johnson's head, for example, that hit there because it's in the wrong 
wrong place. Too low. Yep, way too low. Doesn't mean it's from outer space. It's just an unidentified flying object hit it, and it just hasn't been explained, so it's unidentified. Deputy Johnson was treated for welder-type burns to his eyes. This didn't seem to be any airplane, not way faster than something like that. His supervisor at the time was Sheriff Dennis Brecky. We uh, do believe that our deputy had an encounter with something that we haven't been able to explain yet on this date, and there's uh, a lot of interest because of that. The internet has brought about new interest over the past several years. Conspiracy theorists are still trying to solve what law enforcement, mechanical inspectors, and the Center for UFO Studies could not. I don't know what happened. I did. I know in my own mind, I did the best job we could at me and my department to investigate and find out what went on, and all we found out is we don't know. Do you believe in UFOs? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of do. There's got to be something more than us around. Now, as for Deputy Val Johnson, he is now retired and living in western Wisconsin. I reached him by phone, and he said there's already so much information out there, he really prefers not to talk about this anymore. The museum housing the squad car is in the town of Warren, Minnesota. It's closed for the season, but they'll let people in by appointment. For more information, go to WCCO.com links. Creepy. So they're not saying there was an alien visit, but they're saying it's an unidentified right. flying object. So yeah, still unexplained all these years later. All right. Well, I tell you. So, folks, again, there we go. That's the typical way the media deals with things like this is they start out by saying, oh, well, some of these sightings are from people drinking whiskey. And look, folks, I've drinking whole liter bottles of whiskey, which is like drinking a 750 bottle or a fifth bottle in the U.S., and adding another quarter of a bottle, and I've never seen any freaking lights in the sky or aliens probing me or anything else. So, yeah, just go on with that BS story. I get so tired of hearing it. And again, you've seen me covered in so many of these cases where the media will bring up things like, oh, it's awful close to St. Patrick's Day. But anyway, once you get past that BS veneer, you can see that the actual story without the anchors involved was pretty pretty well done. And again, they talk about the evidence and the damage to the car and some of that in detail. So I thought that was worth including. Now, let's talk about some of the theories, folks, and some of the things involved with this case. Over the years, there have been a bevy of explanations posited as to what happened. One of the first on the scene, no surprise, folks, it's one of JT's oldest best friends, Philip Class. Can you hear my eye roll from where you are? He keeps turning up like a bad penny. And what was his expert's opinion? Why, it was all a hoax. Val did it all and hoaxed the whole thing. Never mind the fact that several of the items of damage done to his patrol car were not possible for a person to do without tools. And you've already heard that in a couple of the clips that I've played. I suppose Val also gave himself welder's burn and shock as part of the hoax? I try not to speak ill of the dead folks, but Class was a bona fide jackass in my humble opinion. But then again... His link with the CIA has been documented since his death, so I'm not surprised that he would be out there shilling and debunking for the CIA. As for others, let's see. There are a bevy of other theories. An angry husband, boyfriend, or father trying to warn away Val from a girlfriend, wife, or daughter. If that was the case, you would think someone would have come forward by now to either take credit for this or at least have a bit of a laugh at Val's expense. Space debris? Meteor? Similar, last time I checked these items would not fly horizontal and then up and over the car. Classified secret military project? To what end and why? 
There are easier ways to silence a police officer than to go to such an elaborate series of events. But there is a bit more on that a little further along here, folks. An incident with a flash grenade? Why would he have one? This was 1979, folks, in rural Minnesota. This wasn't the L.A. SWAT team. And even if so, where are the burn marks in the car? Ball lightning? Maybe. But again, where are the burns? Again, folks, remember, I've had a personal run-in with ball lightning. Plasma? Perhaps. Time travelers? A time distortion field the object travels in by warping space, or the speed it travels would slow down time for it relative to us, so the science behind it makes sense as far as the missing time. Val was drunk on drugs? Frankly, I believe the time travelers over this one, and if you think fellow officers would not have noticed the smell or other signs, not to mention the doctor, I have a bridge for sale in Brooklyn to show you. Now, folks, before we get into the final bit, I'm just going to play another clip for you with Val Johnson, and he's going to tell you what he thinks. This was the clip from the That's Incredible show that I mentioned earlier, and this was filmed within a year or two of the incident, and so I think it is very pertinent to just go through what happened, and it's an excellent clip. It won't take too long. It's about seven or eight minutes, and then I'll wrap it up for you. You and I are about to take a step into a giant puzzle. The mystery begins on the barren landscape of Marshall County, Minnesota. On August 27, 1979, Deputy Val Johnson experiences something incredible. And suddenly the light that had been there suddenly became here and it uh, struck my vehicle causing some damage to it. I feel that uh, whatever Val told me about the light and the strange, inc strange incident was true. I, I don't uh, doubt Val in any way. Hoax doesn't seem very likely in this case, not only for what all of Johnson's colleagues and friends have indicated about the man, but because of the unusualness of the effects. I'm convinced that it's something not of the ordinary in nature because of the sequence of the fractures as they occurred and the magnitude of the stresses involved in them. Deputy Johnson is a policeman. The documentation of his experience comes from an unusual source. We have a recording of the actual radio call that he made seconds after the incident. Listen closely. 407, uh, what is your condition? I don't know. Something just hit my car. I don't know how to explain it. Strange. Are you, uh, what's your condition? Are you okay? Something attacked my car. What is it that happened? Deputy Johnson recreated step by step the events of that night. I was on routine patrol and I came up to this intersection and I looked south and I uh, saw a bright light just over the center of the roadway. My first impression was that maybe it was a semi with uh, one headlight broken out and then it dawned on me that the light was too big around and too intense for an ordinary headlight. Seven, uh, what is your condition? I don't know. Uh, something just hit my car. I don't 
What's your condition? Are you okay? Something attacked my car. I heard the glass breaking and the locks, the brake, brakes locked up. Val was rushed to a local hospital where he was examined by Dr. W.A. Pinsonalt. My eyes were extremely painful as if I'd been subjected to uh, something like arc welder burn or something. My uh, there was some salve put in my eyes, and they were covered with that, an adhesive bandage. But in a matter of uh, six to eight hours, it had cleared up. Alan Hendry is an investigator with the Center for UFO Studies. Now, on hearing of Val's experience, he came to Marshall County. The case is quite striking for the simple reason that a law enforcement officer has reported a sighting that left behind damage to his car an injury to his own eyes immediately following the experience. We learned of the Val Johnson case in much the same manner we learn of most of our sighting reports. The deputy of Marshall County contacted us directly via our 800 toll-free phone number, which we've issued to 10,000 police departments around the country. The biggest mystery about the Val Johnson case to me is trying to find one neat explanation for something that could behave the way he described yet create the kinds of damage that we analyzed and discovered. Mr. Meridian French, a crash technician for the Ford Motor Company. A request was made by Mr. Alan Henry to Ford Motor Company and uh, through the normal chain of command down to the glass division, I, as the so-called glass expert, was asked to come out and examine the windshield. The cracks in this particular windshield are not unusual in themselves, any one of which I could reproduce uh, myself in the laboratory, but as a group, they're unusual. French traced the outlines of the shattered windshield in order to analyze the fracture. I'm convinced that uh, the fractures, that, as we see here, were made by some type of a blow from the outside of the glass by some firm, uh, probably hard object, but with not sufficient force to crush the glass, but enough force to bend the glass to the point of breaking it. I have not seen anything like this before. They are extremely unusual. I've been in uh, law enforcement for about 15 years. I've been uh, chief deputy sheriff in uh, Marshall County for eight years, and I was uh, elected sheriff of uh, Marshall County last January 1st, so I've been in office about a year now. The car, the car itself had uh, busted headlights. The windshield was broke. One of the red lights on top of the roof was broke. The antennas were bent backward, where if an object would have struck them, they should have been bent forward. But they were bent the opposite way, as if some force had bent them. Bell Johnson's a very good fellow, and he's a good officer. He has uh, three young children and a nice wife, and he's a very reliable person. And my feeling was that whatever happened uh, was strange and unknown, and. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind that Val was telling what he actually saw. This is Deputy Val Johnson and his wife, Roseanne, everybody. Val, 
since that incredible experience that has shocked us all, have you had any other experiences, any, any other close encounters? No, sir, no. Had you had any before this? No, no, this is the uh, first one. Well, how has it changed your life? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, brought our family unit, unit closer together. Uh, we... Because it scared everybody so much, you mean? Well, there was a lot of people confused about it and a lot of uh, unusual stories that came out about it. Uh, but uh, it's uh, brought us closer together as a family unit. Was it a religious experience for you? Many times the, these events are, are a religious experience. Upon reflection afterwards, it's been about six months now, upon reflection, uh, we've kind of come to the uh, conclusion that uh, perhaps the Creator has made other things that we can't readily see or readily identify, and perhaps this is one of the things we encountered out on the road. Certainly a humbling experience. Thank you, Roseanne and Val, for sharing your feelings about your experience with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. What happened? I don't know what the hell happened. What kind of car was it? What's my car, Greg? Yeah, folks, so I think that that is one of the best clips because, like I say, it's quite close to the incident. And everyone's different, but it's been proven that over time, human memory obviously loses a little bit of its accuracy the further and further you move from an event. So that having been recorded just a year or two after the fact, I think was quite a good one for you to hear. So what are we left with? Well, here's a couple of comments that I found on the comments section of that news segment that I included just a little while ago from the local station. The first one says, My family's farm is two miles from the intersection of Highway 5 and 220, eight miles west from Stephen. And my grandfather's mom saw it, as well as Errol and Anderson from the next farm over. They never said anything to the media for fear of being accused of being on drugs or crazy. There are first-hand sightings. My great-grandmother is since deceased, but Erilyn is still alive. So for all you skeptics, there were more witnesses. And also, another one. A military friend of mine in Minnesota said he was chasing the unknown object in a helicopter in the area where Val's cruiser was struck that night. But of course you won't hear anything official from the military about it. So, folks, I do think it's important to, once again, just include the fact here that now it's not so bad, but especially back then, people didn't want to talk about these things. As with those other witnesses that came forward in the earlier article that I just read for you, you know, people would say you were crazy or on drugs. And again, if you're living in a small town, the last thing you need is people saying you're crazy or an alcoholic or on drugs because it'll ruin your life. I mean, it's hard enough to find a job oftentimes. And the last thing you want is dealing with those kind of things. So a lot of people just stay quiet when things like this happen. Same with the Lonnie Zamora case. You know, after the fact, Chavez admitted that he saw it, but he never admitted it publicly. He only admitted it to Hynek. Did Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson have an encounter with an extraterrestrial force that summer night four decades ago? Or might there be an altogether different, although certainly no less intriguing, explanation? The incident has distinct supernatural aspects to it, very similar to several other encounters. At the same time, several very definite UFO incidents also contain similarities. Perhaps the Val Johnson case might one day prove to be an important connecting encounter, one that not only will reveal its own mysteries, but in doing so, those of other equally intriguing 
and perplexing incidents. The case of Val Johnson, then, while seemingly bringing us no nearer to a satisfactory explanation to the bizarre incident that summer's night in 1979, almost half a century later, continues to fascinate those of us with a passion for paranormal encounters and unsolved mysteries. And what's more, there appears to be very little conspiracy about this case. No attempts to suppress information or discredit the witnesses. No men in black. The incident appears to be a genuine mystery to all those who have examined it previously, as well as to Val Johnson himself. With all that being said, he was asked several months later what he thought happened on that night in question. Interestingly, he replied that he had seen something he wasn't supposed to see. He would elaborate that he had likely stumbled onto some activity or another that was seemingly top secret. Because of this, those responsible would wipe his recall clear for the half an hour or so in question. Of course, those who were responsible is very, very much open to debate. Perhaps one last thing to note is the rather disturbing comment he would make concerning the months following the incidents. He would claim that he didn't appear to suffer from nightmares connected to the encounter. However, he would find himself thinking again and again, for no obvious reason he can recall, I am committed. Committed to what? However, remains a mystery. As much for Johnson as it does for us. So folks, I find that a fascinating story I always have. I hope that if you hadn't heard of the Val Johnson case before, it is something that you found some value in. And for those of you who had already heard of Val Johnson's account, I hope I could have shed some more light on it. And hopefully, especially with the the aid of some of those audio clips, you would have learned some more tonight. There were several things that I learned about I'd never heard of, like him having the dental work done and the x-rays. So with that, folks, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Like I say, the plan is next week to have that special episode out, but we'll just see how we go. I'll keep you posted throughout the week. And as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached.